Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was written by J.K. Rowling and was published in 2005. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2009, was directed by David Yates. And we're on the sixth Harry Potter. I can't believe it. It's so exciting. It's it's gone by so quickly, probably because we've done at least three other ones during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think that's kind of made it feel like... What is time, though? It's going... I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> we do want to mention right at the beginning that um, we think... JK Rowling is terrible and we don't agree with any of her anti-trans views and in order to give back a little bit to the community and to kind of push back against all the shitty things that she's done we are donating all of our um, Patreon earnings for the month of April to Sisters Pittsburgh which is a black-led and trans-led organization that focuses on reaching Pittsburgh's um, trans youth community. Mm -hmm. And they do a a lot of really great stuff in the Pittsburgh area, and we want to support our local um, organization. So we really encourage you, you know, if you feel so motivated to donate to trans-focused organizations as well, you know, if you love Harry Potter, but you're feeling kind of mixed about what, jk rowling has done yeah because short of like uh barring any other or like not buying any future harry potter properties yeah it can be like oh man i like these books and i own them so it's not doing anything if i read them but i still don't want to support this yeah yeah yeah. i think that's a really good middle ground to hit is to maybe donate to something like that if maybe you wouldn't have thought to in other situations yeah we actually got a message on instagram from a listener who said that they were donating to their local trans organization in canada and so that was really exciting to hear about um but yeah really excited to continue that donation this month and we also want to mention that as we get into these later books, um, we are not Harry Potter experts. Yeah, Jesus, get off our backs already. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, it felt most, uh, I don't know, doing the first five books uh, for the podcast, I felt like pretty comfortable with like, I remember everything I'm supposed to remember. I know everything I'm supposed to know. Yeah. Getting into this book, though, uh, I definitely started having questions where like I would ask Adina, I'd be like, hey... Uh, this thing that was mentioned before, (laughs) am I confusing this with that? Or like, am I understanding this correctly? Yeah. And we'd either discuss it or Adina would just tell me the answer. We might, we might bring up some of those things Mm -hmm. in this episode. Um, but basically if we say something that like is contrary to something else that's been stated in one of the previous five other books or something like that. We're very sorry. We we deeply apologize. We're dumb people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've read some of these, you know? Um, And so we obviously don't have time to, like, reread the books before we do each episode. But um, thank you for bearing with us. And if there's something that we say that is totally wrong, feel free to write in to us. Or if J.K. Rowling made some tweet 10 years ago that explains... Retcons it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get let's get into the episode, though. Let's talk about this. Let's do it. So each Harry Potter book usually has some kind of like prequel chapter um, to start off the story. But this book actually has two chapters that are like that. The first chapter is about the prime minister of Britain being like, 
oh, here comes the minister of magic who I don't usually have to talk to. And kind of like this connection between the magical world and the muggle world and kind of showing us that Voldemort's return is affecting more than just the magical community. It's Mm -hmm. affecting the muggle world as well. Yeah, it was like really interesting to kind of it it was a good recap chapter. Yeah, that kind of established like the danger that was going on, what had happened in previous books, Mm -hmm. but also kind of creating this new dynamic or showing you this dynamic that you didn't know existed until now between the Prime Minister and the Minister of Magic. Yeah, and the movie kind of references this by showing at the beginning this scene of a bridge in London getting destroyed, and it's clear that the Death Eaters are involved. I would really love to know, maybe we find out later, what Voldemort's views are of, like, coming out to the Muggle I world. Know, yeah. <laughs> like, does he just want to, like, be straight up, like... I think he does want to enslave Muggles, but he doesn't seem like he's outing himself to the Muggles either. No, yeah. I just... Be, I, I want to know his uh, political views on <laughs> uh, wizarding visibility to Muggles. Yes. But, yeah, it is interesting, though, and I think unique to this book, because I think every other chapter in previous Harry Potter books where Harry wasn't there, quote-unquote... It was either like a Voldemort chapter that Harry was like kind of yeah like dreaming about or like kind of in tune with. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that it's just like this has nothing to do with Harry and he has no idea. I mean, in the first book, there's that chapter where it's like Vernon Dursley going about his day, and then that's true. Harry being dropped on the doorstep, kind yeah. of yeah. But I guess so I, we have had this before. I guess yeah, in book one, chapter one of book one, <laughs> <laughs> and we also get a second kind of prequel chapter where we see Bellatrix and Narcissa Malfoy, Draco's mother, go and make this unbreakable vow with Snape that Snape will protect Draco on this vague mission that Voldemort has given him. They're like, the mission. And they're like, I know about the mission. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually, the chapter after that is kind of unique, too, where it's Harry asleep in his room And I thought it was really interesting because, like, the perspective of the reader is almost like this voyeuristic, like, in my mind, I'm thinking of, like, a camera in a film just kind of scanning over, like, newspapers on the ground, letters, Mm -hmm. uh, pamphlets that Harry's collected. Like, you don't know what a letter says beyond what is visible. Yeah. Uh, So it was, like, a really unique kind of uh, chapter for these books. And... I was like, it made me kind of excited going forward because I'm like, wow, the first three chapters on their own are like totally unique. Kind They of. feel cinematic. They do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it felt like it was setting up kind of a different um, book compared to the others, maybe feeling a little more free to break some conventions that had been established over the other books. Yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, the way that the movie begins here, kind of tying it back into the ending of the fifth uh, movie where Harry and Dumbledore at the ministry and there's like photographers taking yeah. photos and like kind of Dumbledore leading Harry away in this aftermath of Sirius's death and kind of impressing on us what has just happened. Yeah, reminding you of the trauma Harry's just experienced. And I also just love that close up of Dumbledore putting his arm around Harry and it just establishing that bond that's going to be so important in this film and kind of emphasizing that. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Speaking of Dumbledore. Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore shows up to take Harry on a little errand. And in the book, we get our customary uh, couple scenes in the Dursley household. Yeah, very briefly, though. Honestly, all this early stuff in this book is super quick, considering yeah. that the last book 
we had all that ministry stuff before and the we got trial. To yeah. And then the book for, before that, we had the Quidditch World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like very different to be thrown into Hogwarts so quickly in this book, mm-hmm. which was different. Um, which I like, though. I think I do we too. need to get to Hogwarts. Yeah. Like, unless there's like a really good reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's just get there quicker. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the D- Dumbledore has a sit down with the Dursleys where he just kind of like politely tells them off like for an hour being shits for being shits (laughs) which was fun to read about but also i'm like okay dumbledore this is he's 16 now like couldn't this have happened like years earlier possibly you could have intervened sooner a little sooner okay (laughs) in the movie we get harry flirting with a waitress in a cafe but sadly, he never gets to go on a date with her because Dumbledore cock blocks him. <laughs> I was just going to say that. He I cock stole block. it. You did. I stole it. You stole it right out of my mouth. Uh, yeah, Dumbledore shows up and is like, oh, you're not going on that date. Uh, I know a lot of people, I, I've just been reading things online, people's reactions to the book and movie. And I know a lot of people were annoyed about this opening. Um, I like it. I like that. Like, the Dursley stuff isn't that important. We don't care anymore. No, like, I don't know. The Dumbledore scene was, like, kind of funny, but also, like, really not that significant. And I liked this establishing the kind of romantic subplots that are going to be so important yes. in this film with Harry kind of flirting with this girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, I'm totally fine with the the scene change as it as it was. Yeah, I... I think we spent too much time at the Dursleys at the beginning of each book, and I'm honestly glad to be gone with all of this. I know, yeah. The fact that this one was, like, very short, I was like, good, let's keep it going. (laughs) Let's keep this fast. Dumbledore has a withered arm. He's not telling Harry why, though. Um, And then they go to find Horace Slughorn, and Dumbledore wants him to work at Hogwarts again. And when they get to this house, uh, it's in total disarray. But of course, we realize pretty quickly that this is all a ruse and Slughorn has orchestrated this kind of destroyed looking house because apparently the Death Eaters are after him. Yeah. And he's been kind of like moving from house to house trying to keep. And I I like this too, establishing the ominous threat that's going on right now with the Death Eaters. Yeah. And I think this shows that Slughorn is skilled. Yes. And they must want him for some reason. Exactly. Yeah. I absolutely love okay there's there's two things in this early scene that i love in the film yeah one is the transformation of slores <laughs> jesus uh Sl- slug. slughorn <laughs> yeah uh slughorn from the uh chair into his regular body yeah. i just love the effect of that i love all the spring noises i love that his one arm is still like the chair arm yeah a little bit longer than usual <laughs> <laughs> really funny really just really good special effect and then when Dumbledore and Slughorn uh, do the spell to bring the house back into uh, out of disarray. Yeah. What a just fun, cool scene. This is what we want from magic. Yes. Like, I love this. This was so cool to watch. And everything from at the end with like the last little uh, piece of the chandelier under Harry's foot. And then it's just ended perfectly with Dumbledore saying, well, that was fun. <laughs> Dumbledore is so great in this scene. And then he's like, well, I just need to go to the loo. Like, yeah, can I'll I be use your bathroom? BRB. Like, and then he comes out later and is like, can I take this knitting pattern like, yes. book? And it's like, 
Well, Slughorn doesn't live here. You're stealing from the muggles, not like Slughorn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is, it's funny because like we talk each uh, episode about the different type of Dumbledore we get yes. per movie. Yes. Uh, or at least after the, at least with Michael Gambon's uh, Dumbledore. Yes. Uh, this kind of playfulness of Dumbledore, we haven't seen, I think, I think since like the third movie. I agree. The playfulness reminds me of the Dumblecoy, which we renamed. Didn't we rename it Dumble Dumb? Because he's playing dumb because we wanted to do the double Ds. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, from the third movie. Because then in the fourth one, he was like really just angry and done with everyone the whole book. And then yeah. the, in the fifth one, he was just like avoiding Harry. He was Dumble Dodge. Yes. Uh, yeah, but like this kind of playful, fun quality I liked seeing in Dumbledore again. Yes. It feels appropriate. I agree. And Harry gets some alone time to talk with Slughorn and Slughorn talks about actually Harry's mom, Lily, and talks about how he taught her um, when he used to be a professor at Hogwarts. And then he also kind of shows Harry that he kind of collects students with talent. He can spot students that have are either well-connected to prominent people in the wizarding world or people who show promise and might become influential. And he sort of takes this role as like this silent orchestrator Mm. of like these fates, like offering to introduce people to others. And then people feel like they owe him and he gets this kind of sense of like satisfaction and also a lot of perks from this. And he meets more famous people through those famous people. And he's kind of built a career separate from his teaching of just like being well connected. Yeah. And I find that very interesting. But I do really love in this story, we find out more or we hear a lot more about Lily, Harry's mom. I agree. Because I feel like every other story has talked so much about Harry's dad, James, and kind of like... How well, we get Sirius and Lupin, who yes. are like best friends with James. Mm-hmm. And then we find out later he was kind of a shit in school and Harry has to like deal with that and like understand that. And that like, you know, Harry obviously looks like his dad, except for the eyes. Um, so we just I feel like we hear so much about Harry's dad and nothing about his mom except for her eyes, apparently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked in this book, we hear a lot more about Lily. Yeah, I agree. It's really great to get that connection and to have someone talk about Lily for a change and not just James. But I do want to mention that, and we've talked about this before, JK Rowling clearly kind of has this like fat phobic fat shaming like thing in her stories where villains are often made to appear fat and ugly. Yeah. And this showed up a lot in the first few books with um, Dudley Yeah, and Vernon. And Vernon. Luckily, we're getting less of that now. But with the introduction of Slughorn, it's constantly being mentioned that he's huge. Like, Mm -hmm. he's fat. He's gross. His shirts don't fit him. Like, he's just kind of bumbling around everywhere. Like, almost every description where they talk about Slughorn being in an environment, they mention his, like, quivering belly. (laughs) And I'm like, why is this necessary? And I just think... Again, we're getting this correlation between being fat and being like a bad person. Yeah. And honestly, it's really saying something that Slughorn, he's the most um, ambiguous ambiguous or neutral of the characters that have been described as like overweight. Yeah. Uh, So it almost feels the most like, well, is this like correlating 
fatness with like evil or like being nasty or that kind of thing. But you're you're right in saying that like, you know, it's not just saying that he was a large man. It's one thing to say that like establishing yeah. that as a character trait. Like that's not bad. No. But it's like his vest buttons were like straining against like the heft it's of constantly mentioned and, and, and in a way that is like i don't know grotesque or like hinting on that it's like his shirts don't fit him because he's too fat yeah like we should mistrust him kind of yeah. yeah so yeah just once again that kind of reappearing in this character mm-hmm. is just kind of another eye roll yeah kind of annoying yes when we've talked about it in other episodes so i was on honestly kind of shocked and sad to see this like come up again because i really didn't remember this from reading it the when first it, time and especially when it went when it was focused on uh Dudley yeah like he's a kid I know like he's not even grown up his body like he hasn't even hit puberty yet and you're like fat shaming him for being ugly like hold it yeah yeah exactly (laughs) um so Slughorn is recruited to join the Hogwarts staff and then Harry ends up at the burrow with the Weasleys. Finally, they're just like, get the fuck out of the Dudley's house. <laughs> just go Dursley's. to be with the Weasleys. Yeah, go live at the burrow like all summer. Yes, we find out that Bill and Fleur are engaged. Fleur? Mm-hmm. Fleur, Fleur, I, I, I'm Flurry. sure that I'm pronouncing it wrong. Dairy Queen Flurry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a couple. It's kind of funny in a way, because Fleur kind of, like, annoys everyone. Yeah. But I am also annoyed because there's this, like, implication. It's also kind of this catty jealousy thing, almost, in the book. Like, it's Ginny and Hermione and Mrs. Weasley who are specifically annoyed with her. Yeah. And the boys are, like, all fawning over her, and it's almost, like, because she's beautiful. So I didn't love that. Yeah. Um. And in the movie, it's like, I don't know if we even... Like, when do we meet Bill? I ne- I don't even remember. I can't. Yeah, we were just, because he's played by, um, oh, oh, he's got a weird name. And yeah. it's, it's weird. And no one knows how to pronounce it. I'll think of it later after the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight when I'm trying to sleep. Yes, yeah, so I'll, th- I'll think of it. But yeah, he's, I think I'm almost positive he's been established before in the films. But like, we were kind of saying how like things like this in the films kind of pop up randomly now like Fleur and Bill show up in later movies I guess they're getting married in the seventh one Mm -hmm. but like them even knowing each other has never been like even established at all yeah and it gets difficult too because like we've read the book so we already know these things and so it gets harder and harder to pick up on the things in the movies sometimes that are not established. But the fact that I don't remember when Bill is introduced in the movies is probably indicative of like how confusing that setup is. Yeah, yeah, because the movies at some point are just like, I mean, you've read the books, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to explain this? I don't think so. Yeah, they do go to Diagon Alley, though, as their usual trip before they go to Hogwarts. And we just have to give a shout out to some of our favorite characters in the series, the Weasley Twins. Fred and George, they are living their best life. They are living their dream. They're entrepreneurs. uh, Yeah. Young men with a vision. Seriously. Living their best lives. They're they're just like, hey, we wanted to do this thing. People told us that it was stupid. And then we just went and did it. And guess what? It was a rousing success. Yeah. They like know their market. They did their market research last book. Hermione is impressed with their spell work. Yeah. At one point. 
she mentions like them selling love potions. Then she's like, well, they probably work because Fred and George made them like she respects the skill. She respects the craft. (laughs) And I love too in the book, we hear about how Fred and George have this whole other line of like products that's actually defensive magic. Yeah. And they're selling it to the ministry, which is Oh, I love this for them. They are like, you know what? We can make a killing if we sell to the government. And I'm like, make that money, boys. Like, <laughs> do what you got to do. Like, live your dreams. I'm so proud of them. I also love, like, their marketing campaign. It was like they had fake ministry flyers in their windows in the book. Yeah. That was like, why worry about Death Eaters when you can buy funny things? Like, it wasn't taking oh, a side. Like, Don't worry about you know who. Try you know poo. <laughs> you know poo. <laughs> That was it. I love them. I I know. They're just like... I miss them in this book. I did too. Just their evolution and growth as characters. I love that we get to see them being like really successful this book. And and I love to them uh, just still being thankful to Harry for like helping give them their start. Yeah. And part of me is like, Harry... You have all this money in invest the bank. in the wizard, like yes, yeah, like in the stock market. Right? It's very unclear <laughs> how much money Harry actually has. Yeah, we don't have the like the um, it hasn't been adjusted to Muggle inflation yet. <laughs> but like, it seems like he has a shit ton of money for some reason that I don't think was ever fully explained. But yeah, he should have become a partner in their company. He should have. Oh, he should have got. Yeah, in on the ground floor, Ian. Absolutely. He should have got shares in that company, not just like that immediate handout. Oh, he could have made so much money. (laughs) While they're in Diagon Alley, they spot Draco being very suspicious and follow him to Borgen and Burks, which is that shady shop in Nocturne Alley. And in the movie, we actually see him kind of like with this cabinet thing. And then this kind of continues later on when they're on the train And Harry is very suspicious of what Draco is doing and decides to, like, sneak into his compartment. Yeah, he uh, clambers up into, like, the luggage. Yeah. It seems like a very bad plan. It's a a very bad plan, Ian. (laughs) And um, so bad that, like, Malfoy catches him. Yeah. And I actually really love this because, like, I think Malfoy catching Harry establishes him as kind of like a worthy opponent in this story. I agree, he's a threat. Yeah, he's like not to just be like, yeah, he he is a danger and a threat to Harry. And yeah. establishing that early, I think, was like very smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about the fact that Harry is convinced that Draco is now a Death Eater. Mm-hmm. And Hermione and Ron are very opposed to this idea. In the movie... It's acknowledged with this conversation on the train. Yeah. And, but in the book, it's like a constant argument that they have. Yeah. And I'm like, why wouldn't they think he's a death eater? Yeah, it's it's a very logical... Like, I don't... There's no evidence given to us to support the fact that he's not a death eater, honestly. Yeah. Like, and, if you have two parents that are, like, Nazis... <laughs> And their child has been spouting essentially Nazi, Nazi propaganda, rhetoric. like, as long as you've known him. And then you're like, I think he's a Nazi. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's, like, really young. I don't <laughs> think that they would induct him into the Nazi society yet. Yeah, I don't understand this. And this is one of the problems I have with the book. Yeah. Is I was like, Harry keeps kind of being, like, 
misunderstood by Ron and Hermione often by other characters too. They're like, oh, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. And of course, we as the reader know that Harry is not overreacting because we had that prequel chapter where we know that Draco has a mission. Yeah, that's true. So I'm like, what is the point of this? The author is like establishing the confirmation that his Harry's suspicion as being correct. Yeah. Like from the beginning. And that's not subverted by the end of the story. It's not no. revealed that like, oh, he was wrong. The his whole time. mission was actually to deliver a present to Dumbledore, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, there's nothing like that. Uh, so we know Harry's right. And then like, so for Hermione and Ron to be like arguing about that so much. I just didn't get the point of it. No. And I don't know. Is it like supposed to be a boy who cried wolf thing? Cause like Harry that, because, like, honestly, this book should just be called Harry Potter, and he was right about everyone I was all right along. all the time. <laughs> I was right. I told you. I told you about everyone. Everyone I've ever hated yeah. is evil. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't know if that's supposed to be the purpose of this or not. I just didn't really like this. No, I I agree with that. It, it, it's, it's kind of frustrating. You think Hermione, I mean, Hermione's so smart. Yeah. And you'd think she'd have a little more trust in Harry. But, like, even just in her own judgment on what's going on. Yeah, I honestly think, it, I don't think it would have changed the story that much for them to just believe Harry. Yeah. <laughs> it just was, like, it was a point of conflict. but For like, no reason. For no reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, after Malfoy catches Harry, he stomps on his nose. Yeah. Breaks it. Yep. And then he does something that I never thought about, but, like, I heard a reviewer of the book say, he throws the cloak back over Harry. Why wouldn't he just take it? Because, like, Malfoy has this mission coming up Mm -hmm. that's going to require a lot of stealth and sneaking around. And if he was like, wow, a free invisibility cloak. (laughs) That's so true. It's like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I will find many uses for this, like killing Dumbledore. That's true. Wow. And to me, I was like, wow, that's a very, very good point to bring up. Yeah, I don't know. I guess he doesn't care and he just throws <laughs> it back over Harry. I mean, I like the setup of him leaving Harry to be taken back to London. Yeah. But like that was such a. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah. That's such an offer. Point. Uh, in the book, it's Tonks that finds Harry. But in the movie, it's Luna. And I think this kind of sets up later on how Harry and Luna have a friendship. And I kind of like this. I love Luna so much in I both know. versions. She's excellent. <laughs> Does this mean that like. Luna is correct about all of her, like, crackpot theories. I mean, she sees the whatever they are in Harry's head, yeah. so maybe. <laughs> it's it's possible. Um, we find out that at the Great Feast, mm-hmm. uh, to kick off the year, that Slughorn will be taking up the position of Potions Master. And Snape has his finally achieved his true goal, which is to be the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. This... M- Goal that apparently, this is so weird. I don't know if I've brought this up before. It's so odd that Snape has wanted the Defense Against the Dark Arts position for years. Yeah. But that students know about that. I know. I'm like, what were the clues? Yeah. Why does everyone know? Like, Snape is not someone who would, like, talk about himself to anyone. No. About, like, what his dreams and aspirations are. Why does everyone know that this is the position he wants? I don't know. But I did make a note when I was reading this that Snape is teaching them nonverbal spells, Mm -hmm. which I'm like, that's, like, really useful. 
Oh, yeah. And so I just want to say that Snape is a good Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Yeah. He's teaching them useful things. I will say, though, I felt very disappointed rereading this book and just how little there was of Defense Against the Dark Arts. I know. I wish there was more. I mean, Snape teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts, Harry's favorite subject. Yeah. With his worst enemy. With his worst enemy that's been taught by a significant character every year or every book we've encountered. And suddenly we're like never in that classroom. No. The amount of time Slughorn gets, like the attention drawn to him is like so much more than like anything in the defense. And I like, I don't know, I get if there's not a purpose to talking about that in this story, but like just that conflict of Harry and Snape. Yeah. I want to know like... We know that he's teaching them nonverbal nonverbal spells, which are useful. What else is going on in this classroom? Is it beneficial to Harry? Like, is he learning shit? Like, what's happening? Yeah, you know, weirdly thinking back, I feel like every other book has talked a lot about different classes that Harry takes and yeah. what he's learning in each class. Yeah. I felt like there's actually very little of that in this book. Yeah. There was a lot of potions. Uh, there was like a little bit of, um, uh, what's the enchantment the, the flitwick's class oh charms charms there's little of that a little bit of defense against the dark arts but like not a lot and this is like getting into harry wanting to be an auror yeah and training for that essentially but mm-hmm. like i don't know i felt like the classroom stuff kind of like took a back seat this book yeah i mean you know that harry's education is based on a lie anyway because he just cheats off hermione and to continue (laughs) that cheating he ends up getting the half-blood prince book which helps him cheat his way through potions class that's very true (laughs) yeah let's talk about potions and the half-blood prince yes firstly the scene in the film where harry and ron fight over that book (laughs) is so funny it is because i think like at least from my perspective when they show the books and one's kind of ratty and one's nice i think in your head you're like okay and then as soon as they both like go for it you like get you're like oh my god this is so funny (laughs) i'm like having this silent struggle yes but of course harry finds out that the shitty book is actually great because it's full of useful notes about potions class. Yeah, and the class is competing to win this liquid luck potion. And I do want to point out though this introduction of the love potion mm-hmm. at the beginning of this class because Hermione smells particular things, Harry smells particular things. And I'm just wondering like I would love to know what everyone would smell. Yeah. With this love potion. I was really curious. In the film, she mentions toothpaste. Yeah. Earlier in the film, when Harry arrives at the burrow, Ron Ron points out she has toothpaste on her cheek. Yeah. I'm like, "Mm." I think that was a connection. Okay, I thought so. In the book, she she stops before she says something. She says, like, something else. That's true. And I'm like, just tell us what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, in order, say what you smell. Yeah. I was going to say, also, her parents are dentists. That's true. So maybe there's, like, some... Toothpaste is relevant. Yeah. (laughs) To her life (laughs) as a whole. (laughs) Uh, This scene is great in both versions. I love, like, the little notes, the helpful notes in the book. Like, crush the seed with the blade knife instead of cutting it. Mm -hmm. Like, the number of stirs. Um... And just kind of like all those and like Hermione, yeah. like not comprehending. She's like, but the book says to cut it. Yes. And just can't get past that. I thought was like and very her funny. her hair getting very bushy. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Her frizzy hair. 
Uh, obviously, this leads Harry to winning, winning the liquid luck, which we are going to call it liquid luck and not its other name that we don't know how to pronounce. Felix Felicis. Wow. Great, great job. <laughs> <laughs> but liquid luck is easier. Liquid luck sounds just better. It's more brandable. <laughs> Um, so Harry, uh, won this and then has also clearly become a favorite of Slughorns. Yes. And to determine the fact that, so last book and movie, Dumbledore was like, I'm going to avoid Harry because that's what's best for him. And we actually saw kind of like a reckoning at the end of the last book, at least, and the movie too, I think, where Mm -hmm. Dumbledore was like, you know what? I was wrong. Like, I should have been more candid with you. I should have been more open with you, Harry. Like, you deserve to know the truth. And to kind of make good on that, like, change of heart in Dumbledore, we see Dumbledore giving Harry private lessons this year. Yeah. And telling Harry that he's like, I'm willing to share more with you. You need to know what's going on. Yeah. And so Harry has no idea what these lessons are going to be. Dumbledore mentioned it to him before, but he like doesn't know. Is this like spell training? What's going on? But I actually think it's more interesting than that. Basically, Dumbledore is investigating Voldemort's past. Yes. And he's trying to piece together clues to kind of like find Voldemort's weakness, essentially. Yeah, and give Harry a fuller picture of, like, who Voldemort used to be. And we get all these memories that Dumbledore has collected over the years about Voldemort. And they go into the Pensieve and view these memories. And I love I love the image of the movie with, like, this yellow, like, yeah. lighted cabinet with these glass vials. It's and, very distinctive. Yes, and the ink drops that kind of, like, transform into things, like, into the environment. Yeah. This is something I find very interesting from, like, a filmmaking uh, franchise perspective is seeing how the visual language changes through the movies as different directors take on yeah. the films. So like we've had pensive scenes in the fourth film before. Yeah. But in that film, Harry like falls from the sky, much more like in the book. Yeah. And kind of like lands in the scene. Mm-hmm. But in this this time in the pensive, like things kind of are misty and ink like in yeah. water and kind of transform around him. Similarly, uh, the effect for um, apparating has changed. Yeah. I think we saw Fred and George apparating last film, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of this quick, like, popping in and out. Yeah. I mean, that was more for comedic effect, I think, Fred and George kind of, like, being goofs with it. Yeah. In this film, we get the apparition effect that continues to the next films, where it's kind of this, like, weird... twisting. Yeah, twisty, kind of tube-like... Which is how it's described in the book. Yeah, I think it's very accurate to kind of the sensation Harry describes in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just think it's really interesting to see how these effects and visual language of the films change. Yeah, and we talked about that with, like, how spells are cast, too. Yeah. The look and, like, the sound of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really cool to kind of see how that just transitions across the films. Like, I don't think it, like, hurts them at all. It's kind of, I don't know, it's fun to, like, watch the first films, like yeah. the first two Chris Columbus directed, and be like, this is one thing. And then by the final films, you're like, wow, it's totally different, but still feels in the same universe. Yeah, it's still cohesive. Absolutely. Yeah, in these scenes with Dumbledore, this is, like, Part of why I really love the sixth book and the sixth movie as well, because we get these 
kind of backstories into Voldemort's life. And the first memory that we see in the book, which is not included in the movie, is sort of Voldemort's grandfather and mother and uncle and their kind of legacy. And we learn about, they're called the Gaunt family. Mm -hmm. And we find out that they're kind of like, they're these pureblood maniacs, right? But they're also kind of like inbred, redneck, like gross <laughs> yeah. people. I love this so much. It, it just feels so interesting and relevant to the idea of like kind of how a dynasty can descend. Yeah. And also how, I, I don't know, I personally associate this like in the US at least um, people who live in kind of like very rural areas yeah. who are essentially like white supremacists. Yeah. And it's like they have so little, but in a way they still have this like pride in their identity. This superiority complex. Yeah. And it's like not that being poor is necessarily their fault in any way. No. But like the fact that you would have such a humble kind of like living situation, but still find yourself superior to so many people is like so fascinating and kind of fucked up. I mean, it's a clear correlation between like poor whites, white trash who feel themselves superior, superior to black people when there's really no reason to do so. Yeah. You know, and also I think kind of bringing in this legacy of like the Habsburgs, which was like this royal family yeah. in Europe, where like they started to look really weird and they had these very rare genetic conditions because they intermarried so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like bad. Yeah, like uh, Voldemort's relatives all have like crossed eyes, yeah. it talks about, which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um so, like, Voldemort probably lucked out that his mom... Married outside fucked, the family. Yeah, even if it was a muggle, like, who cares? Yeah. Like, anyone else. But, yeah, I just love this kind of, like, really twisted look. And and even the fact that, like, they still speak parcel tongue. Yeah. It's, like, this language that only they communicate in, like, mm -hmm. amidst their family so cool. Yeah. Or not cool, but, like, interesting. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, we don't get this first memory in the movie, but we do get the second memory, which is uh, Tom Riddle, young Voldemort, as this orphan in this orphanage. Let me just say, this kid that plays the orphan is so creepy. It's very disturbing. <laughs> He's got omen vibes. Yes. Like crazy. You want to know something <laughs> wild? He is Ray Fine's nephew. Really? They cast him apparently because he kind of did look like Ray Fine's a he bit. He does kind of. Yeah. Huh. This is one of actually my biggest complaints about the film, though. Yeah. Is in all these backs, uh, backstory scenes in the pensive of Voldemort, the ominous vibes of the kid and later when he's in Hogwarts as a teen. Yeah. I have major issues with because, you know, the book describes uh, Tom Riddle as being like, at least when he was in Hogwarts, as being very charismatic or at least very outgoing. Yeah. People really liked him. People were drawn to him. Yeah, very trusting of him. And I think that there's something to be said about having that quality and, like, that being tied to, like, being kind of, like, a tyrannical dictator. Yeah. You know what I mean? A like, narcissist. Yeah. Like, it's sad but true that, like, you know, people like Hitler have to have a magnetism to them. Yeah. Like, a charisma that gets people on their side or gets people trusting them or liking them. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that's so interesting too, especially to look back at like a character like Tom Riddle 
and so many people trusting him and liking him and seeing what he became later. Yeah. I find that to be a very unique and interesting kind of look at people like that. Mm -hmm. Like sociopaths, basically. Yeah. Sociopaths like know what people want and can like manipulate. Exactly. But the film is like, look at this creepy He's fucking so kid. He's so creepy. He's so creepy. Like, who would ever, who would trust him? Yeah. Like, who would look at that kid, either version, and be like, yeah, I like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was one of my biggest beefs was like, it didn't feel like it was doing anything creative or interesting with those flashbacks. Yeah. Another thing that I want to mention that's like slightly related, but not really, is Dumbledore telling Harry in the book that... Uh, Voldemort's mom, Merope, I think is her name, mm-hmm. uh, stopped doing magic and basically died of a broken heart. What does that sound like to you, Ian? <laughs> it, it sounds like a certain uh, woman from a sci-fi franchise. <laughs> it sounds like um, pa- Padme. Padme. In the prequels, just dying for no reason. From childbirth. And again, a same situation. She has a kid and then she just up and dies. And I'm like... Okay, in both situations, we have magic or amazing technology that could, like, save women from dying in childbirth. But apparently it's not enough when you just die of a broken heart. So I just want to point out how stupid that is. <laughs> no, I'm I'm very on board with that interpretation. I just wish she had, like, left Voldemort. Like, yeah. Or Tom, you know, she gave birth to the kid and is like, I don't want anything to do with this. And then she leaves. And then no. maybe she dies later for unrelated reasons. Yeah. But yeah, her dying in childbirth is kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's dumb. We see like a bunch of other flashbacks too with Tom kind of manipulating this old woman and like stealing her shit and kind of like <laughs> going back and altering people's memories to like have them convicted of crimes that he committed. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's never quite as interesting as the very first flashback in my no, mind of like no. his ancestors or even like some of the ones of him when he was younger. Him stealing the stuff from that woman is like I, I see how it's necessary to the plot to establishing what the horcruxes are later. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was kind of a diminishing thing as the flashbacks went on. It felt like we were being given less interesting or useful information as they went. I agree. I was more interested in his mom, I think, and like her history. Yeah. And like how what made Voldemort the way he is? Like, I get like wanting to find out what the Horcruxes are. Yeah. But I kind of want to know more about like, like what was he like at the orphanage? Tell us more about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we definitely get a lot more flashbacks in the book uh, as opposed to the film, which, um, yeah, I was fine with like cutting those down for sure. Yeah. Although I really love those parts. Of the I do, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's take a moment to talk about. <laughs> Quidditch. We have to talk about Quidditch every episode. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we So the film, or the fifth film, Order of the Phoenix, did not touch on Quidditch at all. Yeah, they were like, Quidditch is not necessary to this plot. No, but it's back, baby. We get Quidditch again. And it's funny because in the fifth book was the introduction of Ron joining the Quidditch team. Yeah, and that was basically all the Quidditch plot. Which I really loved, because it kind of injected some interest back into Quidditch for me. Yeah. Uh, Because I think in the third book, Quidditch was like kind of very boring and uninteresting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was funny, because the film doesn't address the Quidditch at all, 
But I knew that Ron joined in the sixth film. So I'm like, okay, is the sixth film going to kind of um, introduce elements from the fifth book that we didn't get? Because that'll be interesting. But ironically enough, like uh, it doesn't really because in the sixth book, Ron still has to try out for the Quidditch team again. Yeah. And is still has no self-confidence about it. And like basically it's still the exact same. I know. I think this is really weird because it's almost like we're getting the fifth book's plot line of Ron on the Quidditch team yeah, again. Yeah, it is. And I'm like, didn't we just do this? Yeah, didn't Ron, like, overcome yeah. last book? Weasley is our king. Weasley's our king. Yeah. Yeah. But he's still not confident in this tryout situation, and then it's sort of a tale of Ron and, like, Harry trying to help Ron get more confident again. And, I mean, it totally works in the movies because the fifth one just doesn't touch on Quidditch at all. Mm-hmm. But the, for the books, I was like, aren't we retreading some territory here with Quidditch? Absolutely, yeah. I will say, though, that I do like what goes on with Ron in the book. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like um, we learn kind of characteristics in certain aspects of, like, Hermione and Ron throughout the stories, but we don't usually get kind of arcs with them. Yeah. Uh, But in this book, I think we're introduced to or reminded a lot of Ron's several insecurities. Yeah. You know, there's his Quidditch playing that he doesn't feel good about. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the book, uh, Ginny kind of has a throwdown with Ron. Yeah. Where she kind of makes fun of him for like having not dated anyone and that Mm -hmm. like he's insecure about that. Which started because Ron was implying that Ginny was like kind of a slut for going out with two guys (laughs) in her life. Two Ginny. Two. Yeah. Uh, Shut up, Ron. (laughs) Yeah. He was being really obnoxious and shitty about that. Yeah. But I do like kind of highlighting this like flaw in Ron's personality and kind of exploring that and kind of giving him a little bit more of a. I mean, I I think as the youngest brother in this family, he feels like he has a lot to live up to slash compete with. Absolutely. Yeah. So I did like that Ron kind of had this like continuing motif throughout the story or at least in the book. Yeah. Um, In the film, I want to point out, I do love the Quidditch tryouts. Mm -hmm. I love that, um, first of all, the score in this film is great. It is really good. I don't know if there's like a specific theme for this movie, but there's one that plays during the Quidditch tryouts that I associate with this film in particular. Kind of this like jaunty kind of fun music. And I love that he's competing against Cormac. Mm -hmm. And Cormac is just cool and like you know, getting every quaffle, you know, knocked out of the way and being awesome. But Ron is like, he has this kind of derpy technique yeah. where he's kind of awkward and kind of like headbutting the ball and like kind of being weird, <laughs> but he's still effective. Yeah. So I kind of liked this scene. I thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. Of course, Hermione has to uh, confund. Confund, yeah. <laughs> uh, Cormac um, to help Ron to get on the He team. just needed a nudge. Like, he, he was just like, like a little bit of help. He was like 80% of the way there. He just needed that little push. <laughs> but yeah, Hermione cheats to save Ron, which is like very out of character for her. I wonder what could be going on. I don't know. Um, meanwhile, Katie is cursed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they go. they take a trip to Hogsmeade on the way back. She touches, she's being weird, acting weird, and she Mm -hmm. gets cursed by touching a necklace that she was carrying. 
I love this effect in the film. Yeah, it's very dramatic. Yeah, it's very creepy. It's very iconic, like her with the hair kind of floating. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And we kind of determined that this necklace was meant to be delivered to Dumbledore. And of course, Harry is like, I know who did it. It's Draco. I've been suspicious of him from the beginning. It has to be Draco. And I just have to mention this scene in the movie (laughs) where he's talking to Professor McGonagall and Professor Snape. And he's like, it was Draco. And they're like, McGonagall is like, well, that's very serious. Like, what proof do you have of this? Yeah. And Harry's like, I just know. And Snape is there. And Snape, of course, in his fashion is like, you just know. Like the pause, (laughs) the Alan Rickman pause. Honestly, Alan Rickman, I got to say, oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah, I, I. I'm sure we've talked about how good he is, but like it can never be understated how good he is at Snape. No, no. He takes the longest (laughs) pauses in the middle of lines. I know. And it just it's so sarcastic. It's so cheeky. It's so (laughs) funny. I love it so much. But this like I you just know. And then him saying later like, Wow, it must be great to be you, Potter, who just have like powers beyond the normal understanding. It's just so like hilarious. I love it. When once again, um, I feel like Snape, he kind of fluctuates. Yeah. Alan Rickman's like version of Snape, though, is always just like really biting and sarcastic. It's always better than the book. Absolutely. In the book, he's always like too far. Yeah. Especially knowing where that character goes and revelations about him later. Yeah. Like with Alan Rickman, he's just kind of like very biting and sarcastic in such a great, fun way. Yeah. Um, Whereas in the book, he can be like really cruel. Really mean. Really sexist and just nasty. Yeah. Like... It's not just this kind of um, annoyance. It's like so much more than that. I agree. But Alan Rickman. But Alan Rickman. Mm. Chef's kiss. We love him. (laughs) This Ron storyline kind of comes to a head with their first Quidditch match. And Ron is super nervous. And Harry knows that Ron is going to be bad because he's nervous. And he just needs confidence. So he pretends to put liquid luck in Ron's drink. Uh Uh-huh. And th- I love this this setup, Ron thinking that he has luck on his side, everything going his way. And of course, he does excellent. Yeah. He blocks it's just every his shot. Own skill. Yeah, it's a great scene in the film. I love it in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of so essentially this whole thing blows up because Ron and Hermione have been having a bit of a tiff so far this book, and he wants things to be better between them. Yeah. And this ends up blowing up because Ron is upset because he's like, I could have done it all along. And you, Hermione, didn't believe in me. Yeah. And she's like, well, I thought I thought he put it in your drink. Like, it looked like he put it in your drink. Yeah. And he's like, no, you don't trust me. And he's also mad because she kissed uh, Crumb two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Again, his insecurity is getting the best of him. Yeah. But Harry, who lied and manipulated his friends and like used Hermione as like a pawn in his scheme (laughs) to win a game of sports. (laughs) 
is like, what? The, Blameless. My, this didn't work well? Like, how did this not happen as I planned? Like, who could have seen this coming? Yeah. I'm like, you, Harry. <laughs> you should have seen this coming. It is really sad, though, because, like, Ron starts kissing Lavender and Hermione runs off, like, really sad. I love this part in the movie because her and Harry kind of have a moment together. Yeah. And you find out that Harry is into Ginny and Ginny is dating Dean and it just sucks for both of them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a nice scene uh, between Harry and Hermione that that I really enjoy a lot. And thus enters the subplot of Ron being with Lavender. And honestly, they're just some, some quality lines in the book regarding Lavender. <laughs> I just want to read a couple of them too. So to you, um, so Lavender seemed to consider any moment that she was not kissing Ron was a moment wasted. <laughs> and then there's another part where Hermione reveals that she's taking Cormac to the slug club party yeah. to get back at Ron. And she says this, and then there was a noise like a plunger being withdrawn from a block sink <laughs> and Ron surfaced. And it's Ron pulling himself away from Lavender's lips. <laughs> I love that description so much. It's so funny. It was honestly hilarious. And I just love the fact that like Ron and Lavender have nothing in common. No. They don't care about each other at all. They just like the fact that they're dating someone and they like making out. So they're just snogging constantly. What what better word is there that we in the U.S. don't use? I know we say making out, but we could be saying snogging. Yeah, why? Why aren't we using <laughs> snogging more often? It's better. It's perfect. Yeah. It just like describes the act so perfectly. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to talking about the slug club. Yes. What is it? <laughs> Who is it? Where is it? Well, I think the most relevant thing to talk about is the Slug Club Christmas party, which Hermione wanted to invite Ron to, but then Ron betrayed her with Lavender. So now she's inviting Cormac to get back at Ron. And Harry is like, oh, who am I going to invite now? Because I want to invite Jenny, but she's dating Dean. I know I'll invite my good friend Luna. Luna! I love Luna. Luna is so good. I just... I understand why she's a fan favorite of the books. I think the actress who plays her in the films is excellent. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene, too, in the uh, books where she commentates on one of the Quidditch games. Yeah. And it's so funny. And in fact, in the book, there's a part where uh, I think it's actually that scene yeah. where Harry hears. I think the voice is described as like uh, airy or something. So that's a tip off. Yeah. But it's just Luna has such a clear voice in the books that as soon as you just start reading the what's being said before you know who's saying it, you're like, it's Luna. It's definitely Luna. And that just speaks so much to what a distinct and great character she is. I agree. And I just want to say in the movie, Hermione looks amazing in this scene. Fantastic. That pink dress that she's in, her boobs look great. <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh, well, she was in pink too for the fourth Movie, yeah, right? yeah, for the um, ball. Yeah, it must just be her color. Yeah, I don't know. she looks good in it. Oh my god! In the movie too, that scene where Cormac throws up on Snape's <laughs> shoes—it's really wacky. But honestly, I'm like, what is this? But I love it. I know. I'm I'm here for it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, Malfoy gets caught like apparently gate crashing the party yeah. by Filch and. 
But then uh, Harry overhears Snape kind of berating Malfoy over this. Yeah. And essentially Harry finds out that Snape is kind of in cahoots with Malfoy and whatever it is that he's planning for the year. Yeah, and that he's made an unbreakable vow. Yeah. I also want to point out, uh, too, that Harry in the movie is really trying to get Slughorn on his good side because he knows Dumbledore wants him to. In the book, he's actually avoiding Slughorn for like half of the story. Yeah, And yeah. then only like reluctantly, once Dumbledore asks him to, tries to get to know Slughorn. Mm-hmm. Also, I would just like to say that at this party, there is a vampire that was invited. Oh my God. And I would just like to say that I love that this, like, <laughs> Harry Potter universe has- It's so vast. It's so vast. I love that it has vampires, and also it feels zero inclination to, like, explain, explain anything about what, <laughs> what vampires are about. No, like, you don't need to know. Yeah, they're vampires. Like, what? <laughs> what, what else could you What do you want to know? <laughs> It's interesting, though, because, like, in the movie, we get hints of what Draco is up to, kind of showing us the whole time, whereas in the book, we don't know what's going on at all. The movie shows Draco in the room of requirement. It shows him with that cabinet and putting, like, an apple in it, and then it comes back and there's a bite out of it. Yeah. There's the bird that he puts in it that is, like, dead at one point. Yeah, I will say that I think this gets, like, a little confusing. Yeah. Because then later, Harry and Ginny open that cabinet, not knowing what it is, and a live bird flies out, which I think is meant to imply that he's, like, fully fixed fixed it. it. But, like, why was the bird still in it? I don't know. It was a little weird. Yeah. Um, But I do think the movies benefit from the ability to leave Harry a little bit. Yeah. And like show, show a different perspective. Yeah. Show what Malfoy's up to show what other characters like we don't need to know specifically that the cabinet's being fixed or what's going on. Yeah. Um, but I do think that bit of freedom helps the storytelling instead of later having to get these. He like, like explains explain it. He explains it all the, the to cabinet Dumbledore. What he was doing <laughs> and like everything and like my master plan. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the vanishing cabinets though. Yeah. Because this is number I don't know. A million? 852 (laughs) of ways wizards can teleport and travel. Yes. There's too many, Ian. Too many. Every book, there's a new one. (laughs) Yes. At least. If not several. So far, we've had, um, what? We we have flu powder. Yeah, we have brooms. We have the train. We have apparating. We have port keys. Port keys. We have this vanishing cabinet nonsense. I mean, even... If you're just talking about like teleportation, not just like uh, movement, but like teleporting, you still have flu powder, port keys, apparition, and now uh, the vanishing cabinets. Yeah. And in the movie, they kind of describe this as like, oh, these were all the rage when Voldemort was in power because people could like hop in them and like escape. And I'm like, what about apparating? Yeah. I mean. Is that not an option? Maybe some wizards and witches like. Oh, in the night bus. We forgot yeah. about the night bus. Sorry. Oh, yeah, the night bus. Yeah, as a general one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like um, as an alternative to like apparating, it's like why like are are some wizards and witches not good at it? Like do they need like a different means of like disappearing? I don't it's not know. Clear. It's not clear. No, but like there's so many methods of like teleporting or just general travel in the Harry Potter series. And this is like just one of many, many others where I'm like. Too many. All right. 
<laughs> we get it. Magic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Draco's whole mission is to repair this vanishing cabinet, which, funny enough, has been mentioned in other books. Yeah. Um, but he's fixing it because apparently there's like a, a sibling cabinet mm-hmm. in Borgen and Burks. Burks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that like it's a gateway and yeah. he's trying to like fix it. Yep. Something else I wanted to uh, bring up around this time was just kind of the interesting, different tone of this Harry Potter movie. Yeah. Compared to the others. Because this is very much, and, and the filmmakers I've seen in interviews have talked about this, it's very much a more comedic tone. Yeah. Much more of a rom-com kind of high school comedy vibe going on. Yeah. And... I think personally, it's very effective for the most part. I agree. There's so many funny scenes in this film that just for a number of reasons. And I mean, I think it's important to remind you that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are teenagers. Yeah. You know, they're caught up in this these events that are so beyond their years, you know, and they're having to do so much that they shouldn't really have to do. And I love that this book, in a lot of ways, kind of refocuses that they're at school. Like, they're yeah. teens trying to figure out, um, like, love and crushes and all of these, you know, taking classes and trying to figure out what they want to be when they get older. And the movie taking this more comedic rom-com tone, I love that. I do, too. Yeah. And I think it does what, kind of what the fourth movie tried to do to an extent, which is, like, Hey, what if wizards, but in high school? Yeah. Or what, I'm sorry, what if high school, but with wizards? Yeah. That whole thing? Yeah. I feel like the fourth movie tried to do that, but it kind of was just kind of cringy at points and kind of like over-dramatized or like not great. Not great. I think this movie does that so much better than the fourth movie did. It feels grounded. Yeah. But still magical. Now, I will say that like, I understand that like, if some fans, because I know this movie is polarizing to a degree. Yeah. And I get if some fans were like, this isn't what I want in a Harry Potter film. Like, I'm not here for the romantic comedy humor. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think it's mostly grounded in what's already established in the book. Romance and like relationships and love are extremely prominent in this book. Definitely. And it is a contrast to the fifth book where we felt like the world was opening up. We had so much information about what was going on with the Order of Phoenix, mm-hmm. everything with that. And then in this book, it's like not even a whisper of the Order of the Phoenix. That's basically. true. Yeah. Like they kind of mention it here or there, but Voldemort's like out to the world. Everybody knows he's out there. And while we get reminded that bad stuff is happening, people are disappearing, people are dying, it's still very focused on school and the students and their relationships. Yeah, and I do think it very intentionally creates a contrast between like these earlier parts that are very funny yeah. and later on when kind of shit hits the fan and setting up like the next yeah, book the tone and of film. The, the rest. Yeah, yeah, specifically the film. Like I think it kind of like creates that contrast very effectively, but I like getting these funnier, uh, lighter moments in the yeah. film. Just a couple that we have already happened. <laughs> One is when they're on the train going back oh, yeah. for Christmas and Lavender comes up to the window of their compartment oh my and God. breathes on it <laughs> and starts writing. And Harry 
and Ron are just awkwardly sitting there and like Harry's like shifting in his seat. I think he like plays with the armrest yeah. in the train. <laughs> um, and then one of my other favorite lines in this whole film is uh, earlier when they see Slughorn at the three broomstick broomsticks. And Slughorn is like kind of tipsy from drinking. Yeah. He slashes his drink like at Hermione and he says, oh, all hands on deck, Granger. (laughs) (laughs) Just that expression, all hands on deck is so funny to me. Yeah. Uh, There's so many scenes, though, and moments and they all don't land. There are some scenes that are like maybe a little more awkward than they are funny. Yeah, every scene between Harry and Ginny. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even some of those I find kind of funny. Like, honestly, the shoelace scene, I kind of find funny. I just hate it. Really? I don't like it. <laughs> no, it's bad. See, I kind of like the fact that like it's something that is like on one hand, like just very innocent, yeah, but then also extremely suggestive. <laughs> and like that balance is like so awkward. But I like, just don't love that that's their like dynamic. No, I agree. Like it, it's very imbalanced where they just share a lot of awkward moments, yeah, until they're like together. yeah, I, I do, yeah, no, I agree with that. But like in terms of like isolating a scene, I do kind of think that's like funny and weird, but like, interesting Mm -hmm. um but yeah no like not every scene comedically lands but overall i think this is like a very funny movie and i think you and i both i totally agree and speaking of harry and jenny we're at the borough now for christmas and we have those those awkward scenes between harry and jenny Mm -hmm. and we also have kind of an update from lupin in the book at least he's gone undercover with the werewolves to try to like get them onto dumbledore's side lost cause if you ask me <laughs> um but we get this kind of update about fenrir grayback mm-hmm. who is actually the werewolf who changed lupin when he was a boy and listen we talked about this in the third episode where jk Rowling is making this connection between werewolves and AIDS. So making this connection between werewolves and being gay. And now we have a werewolf who likes kids (laughs) and likes to bite them when they're young. Yes. And he says multiple times in the book that he loves kids and wants to eat children. Yeah. So, again, we're having a problem where you're making this connection and then you're not prepared to deal with the fact that there's this connotation between being gay and being a pedophile. Yes, yes. Which is bad. There's a really good video essay by the YouTube channel Just Right, and it's actually about the show Attack on Titan, Mm -hmm. but it's about this exact subject where you create an analogy or um, comparison earlier on in a series or show but then you don't stick with that or you you don't get somewhere else yeah and then you take it somewhere else and like clearly that association is still there and the problems involved with that yeah we'll link to it on our um patreon it's a really good video but this is a great example of that we're like in that isolated story the aids analogy is like okay maybe a little tone deaf but like it's fine enough but yeah but now 
when we get into the Greyback storylines, like, okay, am I still supposed to be making this AIDS analogy? Because we have a werewolf who's targeting children and talks about how he likes children. Like, it's not good. <laughs> and infecting children. Yeah. And your children aren't safe. Yeah, it, it, it's not good. It's very, it's very bad, actually. Yeah. We also get a scene in the book with the new Minister of Magic, because Fudge has been fired, um, trying to cozy up to Harry and get him to support the ministry. I loved this scene yeah. in the book. Yeah. This is a fantastic scene because the minister takes Harry aside and talks to him and is clearly like, hey, how you doing? I'm just dropping by, you know, <laughs> me. The, Your good, friendly neighborhood Minister of Magic. <laughs> the President of Magic. Uh, just to see how this like small town or, you know, family is doing on Christmas. Uh, but clearly he's like trying to like get Harry and coerce him into like supporting what the ministry is doing during this like uh, time of uncertainty with Voldemort. And I really love this specifically as a contrast to the last book. Yeah. Because in the last book when it began and there was Umbridge, mm -hmm. and she gave the speech to the school about the ministry and how they were helping with their education and all that. Harry needed Hermione to basically interpret what was being said or what was not being said. Yeah. And Hermione would be like, listen, the ministry's going to get overly involved. They're going to change our curriculum. They're going to yeah. get like way too into what's happening at Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. Like Harry didn't like pick up on that. Yeah. But now Harry, he's Harry has learned. He's woke. <laughs> he's like, I know exactly what the fuck you're up to. Like, yeah. I know I'm ahead of you. I'm 10 steps ahead of you. And I know you're trying to get me to support you during this time and all your shitty decisions. And Harry just like straight up tells off the new minister of magic. Yeah. Uh, who we're not saying his name because it's like we're going to mispronounce you say it. it. You're good at it. What? What is it? Rufus. What? Rufus. Shit. <laughs> Scrimgower. Scrimgower? Scrimgower. That sounds right. <laughs> Scrimgower, I think. Yeah, I can't say Ian can. <laughs> but maybe I can. Uh, but yeah, Harry just has this really great confrontation and is like, I'm Dumbledore's man, like through and through. And yeah. you're not going to get to me. Yeah. And it's a really good scene. I really love this. The movie doesn't have this part, but it does have a kind of different confrontation scene where the Death Eaters kind of attack the burrow. I'm not sure what the point of this scene was, honestly. I, I think I know. And I think the, the director has talked about this okay. from what I read. But like he wanted this to and I, I get the, the meaning of this. Like he wanted to kind of have this scene as like a reminder that like, you know, Harry, Ron and Hermione, even though a lot of shit is going on outside of the school. Yeah, they're in school and they're protected and they're having their like little high school drama dramas and everything. Um, but like the world's in disarray. And in the book, Hermione's constantly reading what's going on in the paper. Yeah. People disappearing, people being under attack, people being like controlled with the Imperius curse. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you can't just have her reading off a newspaper no, all movie. No. So I think this scene was meant to establish the threat that still existed in the wizarding world while Harry, Ron, and Hermione are safe in school. It's like, hey, in that one scene when they're not in school, let's remind everyone of the threat that's going on. Yeah. Especially because later on, when shit gets really dark and, like, the twists that happen, I think it would feel very, like, jarring mm -hmm. without this. I think this is, like, a, rem a good reminder of, like, what's going on in the world. 
Yeah, my only like kind of gripe with this though is like later in the movies we see the burrow again. And I don't think there's a mention about them like rebuilding it after it's set on fire. No. <laughs> and so I'm like, come on, just give us something. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a very throwaway moment where it's like, oh my god, the devastation of the burrow on fire, but also we're never gonna acknowledge <laughs> anything about No, I, I agree with that aspect of mm-hmm. it. I like the attack. I like Bellatrix showing up and taunting Harry about Sirius being dead. Yeah. And I like Ginny following Harry. Yes. Into this situation and the reads that they're kind of like in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a very effective scene and I like what it does in the film. I agree though. The the burrow being on fire is like. Okay. Very unnecessary. Yeah. Also in the movie, Lupin and Tonks are a couple. Yeah. And this is something that kind of is hinted out at throughout the book that like Tonks is into Lupin, but he's not into her. And it's only at the end of the book that they kind of get together. Yeah. I kind of liked this arc in the book. Kind of like, you know, Tonks is upset about something. Yeah. And they're like, is it that Sirius died? Cause she was kind of related to that in that fight in the ministry. Mm-hmm. Like, is it that she's in love with Bill or, you know, whatever. Uh, but then to find out that she's in love with Lupin and Lupin is very against it. Him being a werewolf, him being older. Yeah. But I like that, uh, you know, this kind of they they reconcile that at the end and seem to kind of be together to a degree. Yeah. I do want to point out that, again, this characterization of like werewolves is AIDS werewolves is yeah. gay yeah. is very much like, oh, no, but he's straight, though. He's got a lady with him. Don't worry. He's totally straight. That's really... I remember us talking about that, I think, in the third episode that, like, I don't know if we had a gay character who was, I don't know, openly gay. Yeah. And not, like, retconned gay, essentially. Yes. Uh, But, yeah, no, the fact that, like, Lupin has this AIDS association tied to him, but also he's totally... But he's totally straight. He's totally straight. He's totally straight. (laughs) Let's talk about Slughorn. And if you thought we were getting our first representation of a Slytherin who doesn't suck, let's talk about this this faked memory. Yeah, Dumbledore shows Harry this memory in the Pensieve, and it's clearly altered. And he tells Harry that this is an interaction that Slughorn had with a young Voldemort, and that it's very important to figuring out or Voldemort's backstory and possibly his weakness, but that Slughorn is unwilling to give the real memory to Dumbledore. And so he's like, I think you can get it. Like, you're the one that can do it. I will say, I think the movie made a smart choice with the memory in the film. What Tom asks about is kind of like muted. Yeah, it's like phased out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whereas in the book, he asks about Horcruxes and then... Slughorn like doesn't answer based on the faked memory but I'm like okay why does Dumbledore think there's something to this memory worth knowing I mean eventually we find out based on the number of horcruxes that's mentioned yeah like why would Dumbledore know that that information was in this memory or could be just asking about horcruxes in general yeah and like you'd think Dumbledore if he knew what horcruxes were or could look it up or figure it out it wouldn't be that big of a deal yeah I like in the movie he doesn't know what he's asking about and you could see this being a big piece of information that Dumbledore needs. Yeah. Like maybe he kind of knows what's going on, but like not specifically. He needs the confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dumbledore's like, you can do this, Harry. And Harry's like, I know what to do. I'm going to repeat <laughs> the exact words that Dumbledore, or the, 
I keep saying Dumbledore instead of Voldemort. I did that earlier when that we were talking. Voldemort uses with Slughorn. I'm just going to repeat the conversation. He does this in both the book and the movie. He's like, I know. This will get him to tell me the truth. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it just makes him intensely suspicious of you. Harry is a awful spy. He's so bad. Like, Harry should never be involved in any kind of espionage. No. And Dumbledore should not have trusted him with this mission. No, and in fact, it alienates Slughorn, because then Slughorn is suspicious of him. Luckily-ish, maybe, for Harry, uh, Ron gets himself love potioned quickly after this. <laughs> poor Ron. Poor, poor Ron. I The way this scene plays out is so funny in both versions. I know. Uh, you know, where Ron is going on about the love of his life, and then Harry conf- is confused when he says that it's... um Lavender. No, not Lavender. Oh, Romilda. Romilda, thank you. Yeah. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he realizes what happened. Yeah. Uh, that he ate uh, poisoned chocolate meant for Harry, essentially. Roofied chocolate. Yeah. Essentially. How is this legal? I don't know. How is Love Potion legal? I don't know. It's it's really I, I terrible. I mean, we find out from Voldemort's past that his mom... Used the Love Potion on the Tom Sr. Yeah, for a long time until she became pregnant with his child. Yeah, that's not right. A lot of <laughs> ethical implications. Consent is, like, not a thing, I guess. No, who knows where, with magic. where the lines are. Yeah. But Harry takes Ron down to Slughorn's office looking to get him cured. And I really love, it. it you know, it's funny because, like, Ron takes the... Um, the tonic. The tonic or the key, the tonic <laughs> for his nerves. Yeah. And the book describes this. Yeah. This slow change in his expression. But seeing Rupert Grint, like act this i know because he's so dopey looking he's so euphoric yeah and then just the slow dawning <laughs> of uh, horror <laughs> on his face he's like i feel really bad <laughs> <laughs> he's like what happened <laughs> and then slughorn's like all right i know what you need alcohol. i need to give alcohol to this underage <laughs> <Minors>. child <laughs> And promptly poisons Ron. Luckily, Harry's been paying attention to the Half-Blood Prince's book and knows that a Beozer? Beozer? Uh, I don't know how to say it. Bolt. Beozer. Beoz. Ah, Beelzebub. Beelzebub. <laughs> um, he saves Ron's life, which is amazing. And Ron, in the movie, ends up kind of awakening and says, these girls are going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Great line, super funny. Um, and but even funnier, once again, just like going into this, like let's just go, let's yeah, dive bringing head first. the comedy up to eleven. We get the scene in the hospital wing after Ron is unconscious, recovering from his poisoning. Yeah, Hermione is with him. Dumbledore, Snape, and McGonagall show up discussing what happened. Yeah. Discovering that the alcohol was actually meant for Dumbledore as a gift from Slughorn. Yeah. And then who interrupts everything but Lavender? Yes, of course, she's there to be with her beloved Juan Juan. Um, <laughs> and Ron takes that moment to mumble in his sleep. Not the name of his beloved Lavender, but the name of Hermione instead. And Lavender... 
runs from the room crying and like this whole scene plays out i love that the camera keeps dumbledore and snape in the background yeah throughout the whole thing you can just see them standing there watching this <laughs> unfold and dumbledore's line to be oh to be young and to feel love's cruel sting <laughs> meanwhile snape is just standing there watching this happen even though dumbledore gets the line afterwards the fact that snape is just there to witness this <laughs> is so so funny once again just like some of these comedic scenes are so effective in the movie yeah i just love them uh the book doesn't happen this way like ron and lavender are still together but he and Hermione kind of make up after this. I think Hermione was like, oh, my God, Ron almost died. Like, I'm going to stop being mad at him and, yeah. and still be friends with him. But this does kind of signal the end of Ron and Lavender's relationship, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I also want to mention, though, that Mrs. Weasley and Mr. Weasley kind of make this comment when they, Ron is in the hospital. And they're like, oh, yeah. Harry, you've saved so many members of our family already. Like, it was such a lucky day that Ron sat next to you on the train. And, like, we owe you so much and like we love you and i was like this is so beautiful i know i just i love the weasleys as harry's surrogate family i know especially mrs weasley she's just so loving and caring and mr weasley too that like harry's able to confide in him on several occasions about things yeah it's very touching and like i don't know after everything Harry's endured with the Dursleys. I know. It's just so heartwarming to see his relationship with like so many of the Weasleys. I totally agree. We unfortunately have to bring up another point, House Elves. And it's Elf Watch, baby. <laughs> it is Elf Watch, and it's bad a bad time all around. Again, the movies smartly ignore the elf issue <laughs> brilliant, altogether. Brilliant move by the films. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the book is terrible, and it starts out with Harry uh, acquiring ownership of Creature, the mm -hmm. elf that used to serve Sirius and his family because Sirius left everything to Harry. So then Harry is like, all right, yeah, I guess go live at Hogwarts because you have no agency in your life, and I command you now. And then Harry decides to ask, not ask, demand that Creature and Dobby start tailing Draco for him. Mm -hmm. and find out what he's been up to. And Creature doesn't want to do this. Dobby wants to do it too much. <laughs> and it's just bad all around. And then we have other mentions in the book, like Slughorn has yes. house elves serving drinks at his Christmas party. Oh, oh, yeah. And then he also mentions later that after the poisoning incident, he has house elves taste all of his wines and alcohols to taste for poison. Instead of just throwing out everything. Or using magic, Ian? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it feels like magic. There should be a solution in magic. Yeah. Even if there wasn't magic, he would rather kill. A house elf. One or more house elves. Like, if one died, he might be like, okay, bring another. Let's try these other bottles. Yeah. He, ta he has them as taste testers for his alcohol because he doesn't want to throw it out. Yeah. Wow. And it's worth mentioning that this book, I think, mentions Spew once. And and just to be like, it existed at one point, but like Hermione has like dropped, dropped it? it completely as a... An issue? Yeah. Yeah. I don't love this. No. <laughs> 
I don't even know what to say about this. Like, did J.K. Rowling, like, I, I don't know. Like, we always got the feeling that, like, it was kind of meant to make, not make fun of Hermione. Yeah. But for her to seem like this overzealous, out of her depth type of activist yeah that is like trying to change something that shouldn't be changed uh that was always the impression i got and it kind of feels like that's solidified in this book by the fact that like it's completely abandoned yeah not great it's very frustrating (laughs) yeah and kind of tying into this harry in the book is like super obsessed with what draco malfoy is up to and it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people reading these stories and writing fan fiction and being like really involved when these books are coming out were really drawn to this aspect of Harry and Draco because it is a very obsessive, almost homoerotic vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, J.K. Rowling is very insistent on her characters being straight uh, for the most part anyway. Um, but I did think that this was interesting that in the book, he's literally obsessed with Draco to the point where... Hermione and Dumbledore are like, hey, you're supposed to find out what this memory is from Slughorn. And Harry's like, oh, sorry, I've just been following Draco around all day. So <laughs> I've been watching every move he makes. It's like the same. I as watch like, him sleep. I don't know. It's fine. I'm straight, though. It's like the I'm same so as like, into Ginny. Watching someone on social media and everything they do. It's like his Marauder's map. Yeah. Um, Should we also mention the Dumbledore thing now? Because I don't know when else we would mention it. Yeah. So obviously, as many people know, J.K. Rowling, after the books were fully published, kind of came out with Dumbledore being gay. Yeah. As being like canon in the franchise. But never explicitly stated in the books. No. In the books later, you can see filling in the blanks kind of about Dumbledore's backstory that like maybe he had a romantic relationship with Grindelwald. Yeah. But like it's so frustrating to be told retrospectively that like oh this character was gay. Yeah. And similarly she's been like oh um Hermione could be black. I never say that she wasn't. Yeah. Even though she like does basically talking about her like quote unquote pale face at different points. Yeah. I don't know. It's like she wants to take credit for being inclusive without actually doing it. No, without actually like trying or anything like that. Um while also making very poorly uh, constructed analogies for AIDS yeah. in her stories. And slavery with the house elves. <laughs> and slavery. Not good. No, yeah. Like, she doesn't follow through with any of these analogies, taking them to any of their proper conclusions. No. But I, I don't know. I think Dumbledore is such a well-loved character it would have gone a long way to just been like, yeah, he was gay. So what? Yeah. And, and either in this book or like later. Yeah, I agree. Especially with like all the terrible connotations of like gay men being predators of young people, which she perpetuates with the grayback yeah. character mm-hmm. to be like, hey, he's the head of a school and he's like totally fine. Yeah. Like he's, he's like a great mentor. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a totally healthy relationship with a young, the young main character of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just is very frustrating looking back on that. Yeah. Let's talk about Harry trying to kill Draco. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a murder. Accidentally on purpose. An tries attempted to kill murder. Draco. He, 
Harry encounters Draco in the bathroom. And I like that in both versions, the book and the movie, we kind of see that Draco is kind of unraveling a bit. We see that the toll that this mission that Voldemort has given him has given him is taking on him. Um, But of course, they can't set aside their animosity and they get into a fight. And Harry uses a spell that he read about in the Half-Blood Prince's potion book. Yeah. um, Which is a bad spell. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the stabby spell. Yeah. Or the slash, whatever. A lot of slashes. Yeah. um, I like in both versions, in, in the book, Harry's actually like, he goes, he kneels down next to Malfoy when he realizes he's like, mortally wounded him yeah uh and in the film he's just like stunned yeah until like you know snape quickly enters the scene Mm -hmm. and begins to like heal malfoy i really love this scene yeah i love that there's no music to it it feels like kind of a real scuffle kind of you know what i mean it feels kind of like dangerous Mm -hmm. it feels more than like i don't know in the second movie when they kind of have that duel yeah and it's kind of this like dumb yeah dumb kind of almost lighthearted affair mm-hmm. this feels like much more real yeah and clearly harry realizes like oh maybe the half-blood prince wasn't a good bloke which he doesn't admit in the book he's no. still like oh no it's fine even though he decides to hide the book in the room of requirement in the movie Like, he and Ginny end up kind of being like, we have to get rid of this book. I wish this idea had been taken farther in both versions. Yeah. Like, what if Harry was reading this book, getting great info and spells from it, but then it was also like, you know, like, for that spell it said, um, for enemies. Yeah. What if it said for mudbloods? Hmm. You know what I mean? What if it was, like, really clearly prejudiced slash, like, racist? Yeah. And Harry's like, oh, this was written by, like... A really fucked up person. Yeah. And I think it would have added more conflict. Because I mean like. I don't know. Hermione keeps saying like. This is a bad book. You should get rid of it. Like yeah. I don't trust it. I don't like it. And like. I don't know. Even though you know she's probably right. It also feels like she's overreacting. Yeah. And it's Hermione's always overreacting Ian. Always. Even though she's <laughs> always fucking right about everything. Yeah. But like it does get a little annoying. And I wish that like. There is more conflict with Harry reading this book. Yeah. I wish it was like a little bit more extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. We get this scene in the movie, though, of him and Ginny like hiding this book. And this kind of leads to them kissing and finally getting together. In the book, it's like he hides the book, but he still gets detention from Snape because he tried to kill Malfoy. I guess detention is appropriate punishment for trying to kill someone. And then <laughs> yeah. he misses the Quidditch match. He can't play anymore because of detention. And then Ginny wins it for them. And then he and Ginny kiss anyway. So they get together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Harry still has to get that Slughorn memory. So Ron has the brilliant idea. Yes. That Harry use the liquid luck potion. And Harry's like, yes, great idea. Even though I was saving this to hook up with your sister. <laughs> Uh, in the book, Harry takes liquid luck. And I I think it's interesting. It kind of gives him like a foresight almost into like, I know what to say and what to do to kind of get what I want. It's like an intuition. Yeah. Also, he inadvertently breaks up both Lavender and Ron 
and Ginny and Dean. I know. When <laughs> he's taken the potion. In like five seconds. It's great. I which love is it. so funny. But we have to talk about the movie scene, Ian. Brilliant. Because Harry is so high <laughs> in this scene. And we've said it. For, like, longer than we've been doing this episode. Oh, yeah. We would watch this movie and be like, oh, my God, this is the scene where he, like, gets high. And and I remember the moment, because, like, you know, I saw this movie when it came out in theaters. I think I did opening night on this film. And I probably saw it later. I don't know at what point it connected with me, but on a rewatch, I was like, oh, my God, he's stoned. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He is. And it's so funny. Like, Daniel Radcliffe, I give him so much props for this scene. And, And the writing. Yeah. Like, so many little moments. Like, I love when he's just leaving the common room. Yeah. And he passes people. And he just over-enthusiastically is like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and him just, like, casually talking to Slughorn. Like, Slughorn, like, with the plants. And he'd be like, oh, those kind of, like, always freaked me out. Like, whatever. <laughs> he's just, like, so blasé. Like, does not give a fuck. And the fact that he's like, well, I'm going to go to Hagrid's hut. Bye. Like, he, his mission is to get Slughorn. And yeah. he knows enough he he almost like doesn't even care about the mission. No, he's just straight vibing, Ian. <laughs> straight is. vibing. <laughs> Which it's so good. And then of course we get this scene with Hagrid and Aragog has died. Which side note, I just want to mention in the books, Harry, Ron, and Hermione do not have time in their busy schedules to take Hagrid's class. Shameful. Shameful. Hagrid deserves more. Hagrid than this. deserves more. And then also they can't find time to just go tell him. That they're too busy and they no. still care about him. I was very disappointed in them. In Hagrid part. is such a pure soul. I know. In this story, in every story. And then he sends them a letter and is like, our Aragog died, please come to the funeral. And they're all like, uh, well, we can't. Ugh. And then it's only when Harry is high that he's like, <laughs> oh, I should go visit Hagrid. <laughs> I, I just, once again, props to the film for like reading this scene and being like, let's make him high is so funny. Um, And similarly, I love the part where um, Slughorn is secretly just in it for the venom. Yeah. That high quality venom. And in the film, when he goes to extract it, he like pulls off the piece (laughs) of the spider. (laughs) Also, Harry's line about the The pinchers pinchers (laughs) is amazing. All Um, of this leading, though, to... Slughorn and Hagrid getting drunk in Hagrid's cabin and this leading to Slughorn being a little more candid. And I honestly, this is just a movie scene like this isn't included in the book at all. But he talks about Lily, Harry's mother, giving him a fish that was like magical. Yeah. And that the the day that she died or the night that she died, that fish disappeared. This was such a beautiful moment. It's so good. This is like one of my favorite scenes. Like, I can't say it's a scene if I'm including the high part. But one of my favorite sequences in any of the Harry Potter films, the comedic ventures of him being high. But then this scene, and I love because it starts off with like Slughorn mentioning like, I had a goldfish that just disappeared one day. Yeah. And it's kind of this like, funny anecdote about death that they're taking very seriously because they're like drunk yeah and it's funny at first but then the realization he starts talking about kind of this beautiful bit of magic that that represented a beautiful soul yeah that was lily and that like he realized that like when it disappeared was the day that she died yeah and it's so touching and sad and then what harry says after is so beautiful too about like 
I need this memory to stop Voldemort. Yeah. And like, I need your help. And I want you to be brave like my mother was. Yeah. Otherwise, the bowl will remain empty. Mm-hmm. And that's, that notion is so touching. The, the bowl being empty, just kind of being like. Haunting. Haunting, but also like the meaninglessness of death. Or like, you know, it will be meaningless unless you like do something about this. Yeah, and I also love when he starts to give Harry the memory. His hand is trembling when he puts it in the vial. And then you just, it's like a close-up shot of Harry's hand just coming up to grab his to like steady it. And so it's like this moment of like connection, but also Harry being like, "This, I need this. Yeah. It's just, like, so poignant for, like, a reason that I can't explain. I know. It's so touching. And, like, I think the book is good, too. The book is Harry more directly telling Slughorn about, like, his mom dying. Yeah. But it feels much more, like, directly guilt-tripping Slughorn into doing what he wants. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, there is some... It is interesting in its own way. But, like, I don't know. The film embodied in that scene... Like, the melancholy and the sadness, but also, like, the sweetness of that moment. Yeah. That, like, is just so poignant, and I love it so, so much. It's really good. Yeah. Harry takes this memory straight to Dumbledore, and they, you know, watch it in the Pensieve together. And we find out, of course, that Dumbledore... Again, I'm saying Dumbledore. <laughs> I Voldemort. think there's three syllables each. Yeah. Voldemort, Dumbledore. Voldemort asked <laughs> Slughorn... About Horcruxes, and he wanted to make seven of them or have seven vessels for his soul. And, I mean, we don't really need to get into it. I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot more when we talk about the seventh book. But, like, we just don't understand what Horcruxes are. No, because, like, we find out the diary was a Horcrux, right? Yeah. And the diary... Uh, was resurrecting the spirit or the soul or whatever. And he was, like, possessing Ginny. Yeah. Like, there was... It was resurrecting part of Voldemort. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, a Horcrux is... If Voldemort dies, there is, like, a backup version. Yeah. Like a... Like, like a, a clone. Yeah, like a, a zip drive. <laughs> yeah. Of, like, Voldemort that you can just re-upload if need be. Yeah. But that's not how the other ones seem to work. No, the book seems to imply the fact that like, oh, the Horcrux means that he can't be killed. Even that part of his soul that is in his body. Yeah. Which kind of explains why when the curse um, repelled off Harry as a child, even though he was like kind of killed, he wasn't really. Yeah. Um, Which like I get is like a different way of like viewing a Horcrux, but like it kind of contradicts like what the second story was telling us. Yeah. Because in that way, it's like, okay, does that mean like more than one Voldemort could exist at a time? Yeah. Like if the, if the, if the diary resurrected Voldemort. Yeah. And also Voldemort resurrected himself. Yeah. Are there two Voldemorts I now? I don't know, Ian. I don't I know either. Tell you. <laughs> it's very unclear. Yeah. And we talked about, too, the fact that, like, when you split your soul, right? Yes, yes. You split it in half. <laughs> so, like, does that first Horcrux have more of you? Because then when you split your soul in half again, it's less. Yeah. Because you've already split it in half, so it's half of a half. And so on and so forth. But... 
I'm sure we'll have a deeper conversation about Horcruxes when we talk about the seven. Yeah, they'll be much more prevalent in in the following episode. But it's still worth mentioning here because, like, there is a lot of exposition given to the Horcruxes and specifically the diary from the second story. Yeah. But also, it was still kind of confusing despite how much was talked about it. I completely agree. Okay, now seems like a good time to talk about which Dumbledore this Dumbledore is. Yeah, which of the many? Which of the many Dumbledores? And of course, we've been revealing them with each episode. And I feel like for this one, we kind of knew this one immediately. We didn't even have to think about it when we were planning them out. And we've decided to make this uh, Dumble Dad. Dumble Dad. Yes. He's he's just kind of fun. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? He and Harry are bonding. Yeah, they're spending a lot of quality time together. Dumbledore is trusting Harry with more than he ever has in the past, especially comparing it to the fifth Dumbledore. They're reminiscing. He's telling him about the good old days and the pensive. Yeah, exactly. They they go on a father-son trip together. And of course, this is making it all the worse because, of course, Dumbledore dies at the end of this book. So they're like, what (laughs) if we just made it like their relationship a hundred times better right before he dies. Yeah, they're finally getting those those <laughs> moments together, you know, right at the end. Right at the end, yes. So it's Dumbledad. Dumbledad. At this point in the book, Harry finds out that, like, Snape overheard the prophecy that Trelawney made about him being the chosen one, and Snape was actually the one to report it to Voldemort. And this creates conflict between Harry and Dumbledore because Harry, for, throughout this whole book, has been doubtful of Snape's intentions and Dumbledore has been like I trust Snape you need to trust me um so I I don't think this really adds much to the this dynamic because we already know that Harry doesn't trust Snape but I will say something interesting that happens in the book at this point is Dumbledore is like we have to go find this other horcrux and Harry knows that Draco is up to something knows that Snape will probably help him and so he recruits Ron and Hermione and Ginny and some other members that used to be part of Dumbledore's army, namely Neville and Luna, and is like, something is going to go down tonight. Yeah. Here's the Marauder's Map. Here's like all these other things. And also like the three people that I care about most, Hermione, Ron and Ginny, take a sip of what's left over from the Liquid Luck. Because I think something bad is going to happen. And honestly, this is like the smartest Harry has ever (laughs) acted in the series. And I am impressed. I'm honestly impressed. Yeah, because so many times in the past, like, I mean, if even if you look at the last book when they were going to the Ministry of Magic, he's like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to do this. Yeah. And and, and Hermione has been like, whoa, pump the brakes. Like, let's look at this. Yeah. But in this instance, it is a sense of urgency because he and Dumbledore are leaving. But he still has the foresight and thought to be like, wait, let me like plan something out for the safety of like my friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, no, I once again, showing how Harry is growing own almost specifically from book five to book six yeah definitely i i really enjoy seeing him be like more on top of things more thoughtful about stuff Mm-hmm. and he and dumbledore are going on this mission to find this horcrux i love that the movie kind of mentions that you're not supposed to apparate out of hogwarts <laughs> and dumbledore is like i'm special though to kind of explain why they wouldn't why they would apparate. In the book, they, like, don't apparate out of Hogwarts. They go to, like, Hogsmeade and then apparate out of there. But I agree that it's unnecessary to go through all that trouble in the movie. Just have a throwaway line about how Dumbledore is special and he can apparate. Yeah, just just do that. Yeah, it's so much easier. It is, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, they go to this cave that was mentioned before in both stories, in both versions, uh, where Tom Riddle as a child took other kids and, like, did some kind of magic torture to them. Torture. Sounds very dark and ominous. Yeah. Um, But it's this cliffside cave that uh, Dumbledore now believes holds a horcrux somewhere in it. It's very, like, questy. You know, like Indiana Jones, like they had to put blood on the wall. There's like incantations. There's this empty lake. And the lake full of zombies is very reminiscent of Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And that like field of like corpses that they have to go through with Gollum. Yeah, the marsh. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I love it. It did feel... I don't know if um, J.K. Rowling meant it to be like a reference to Lord of the Rings when she wrote it, but it felt like the the movie makers were like aware of that connection. Yeah. Um, I do love the set design of the film, how like the cave is kind of like all crystal. Yeah. Like everything feels like it's it, it's made of crystal, mm-hmm. um, like the island in the center, the uh it's not a goblet, but the yeah the the thing, basin the basin yeah that holds the potion mm-hmm. uh yeah even like the shell they use to spoon out the contents is interesting yeah um but we of course get one of the most this iconic, is the part I hate the most Ian dramatic saddest scenes in both versions of the story yeah where Harry has to force feed Dumbledore the potion. I know, and, like, Dumbledore makes him promise to do it. But, like, Harry does not want to do this, and Dumbledore is suffering, and it's just so sad because Dumbledore's like, please don't make me drink this. And Harry's like, you told me to make you. I don't know what to do. (laughs) It's just so, so upsetting. It's so sad. Uh, Michael Gambon, who plays Dumbledore in this film, just, he does such a good job of acting out these moments of, like, fear of like childishness of like i mean to see the character of dumbledore reduced to this is so sad and to see harry suddenly having to take control of the situation yeah is really but and i mean it's very um foreshadowing of the fact that like harry is going to have to pick up where dumbledore left off in this mission Mm -hmm. luckily though Dumbledore is able to save Harry from the zombies that end up attacking them with fire. This sequence, specifically in the film, I'll just say it. The zombies pulling Harry into the water. Suddenly the flames shooting into the water. Him coming up only to then see Dumbledore. Swirling the fire. Creating this like torrent of fire around him. The effect, the rippling of the heat. Yeah. Beautiful, just amazing, amazing special effects, amazing just momentum of the scene. Yeah. It's so good. It is. And they get out of the cave and they go back to Hogwarts and they're in the astronomy tower and Dumbledore is weak and he's like, you need to get Snape for me. Go get Snape. And Harry is trying to go and is interrupted. It's a little bit different. In each version, in the book, he gets actually frozen by Dumbledore and he's under the invisibility invisibility cloak. In the movie, he's just kind of like underneath Dumbledore and has been told by Dumbledore to wait. But in either version, Draco 
comes up and kind of confronts Dumbledore. Yeah. And we are finally, it's confirmed Draco is shit in this story. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say shit. He is a complicated character. You do feel sympathy for him. Yeah. But you do find out he's been behind all of the murder attempts made on Dumbledore. Yeah. And he's actually disarmed Dumbledore in his weakened state. And he mm-hmm. kind of has him. And But Dumbledore is just like, I know you're not going to kill me. You would have already. Like, I want to help you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he even offers him and his mother, like, safety, I think, within the Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Which is an interesting offer that is interrupted by the Death Eaters kind of joining Draco. Because, of course, they've come through from Borgen and Burks through the Vanishing Cabinets. And, you know, we know, though, that Draco would not have killed Dumbledore. And then we have Snape entering the scene and Snape killing Dumbledore instead. I will say I do love in the film the fact that Harry isn't like frozen. Yeah. And that when Snape shows up, Harry encounters him first and Snape tells him like be silent. And that it's this last moment of Harry trusting Snape. Yeah. Harry makes a conscious decision in that moment to trust Snape to handle the situation. So his betrayal when he kills Dumbledore is so much greater, I think. Yeah. The fact that he made that choice as opposed to the book where he's just like stunned no matter what. Yeah. Under the invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. Of course, Dumbledore topples from the tower. He's dead. Harry kind of runs out. And in the book, it's like a a battle going on. Yeah, shit gets crazy. Um, And actually, like the liquid luck that he gave to his friends probably ended up saving their lives. We find out later that like Bill is attacked by Greyback at this time Ugh. as well. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of intense, but he ends up out kind of on the Hogwarts grounds running after Snape and Draco. And he and Snape kind of have this confrontation where he's, they're flinging spells at each other. And this is where we find out that Snape is the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. This whole sequence of Harry chasing them is so great. I love I love that Bellatrix is there. I love her destroying the Great Hall yeah. with glee. Mm-hmm. And I love the look. Tom Felton gets huge props for this movie. I think yeah. his, like, conflicted, you know, nature of not being able to kill Dumbledore. And after when they're leaving, him watching Bellatrix destroy the castle seems like very hard on him. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, Harry catches up with them outside. Bellatrix has set fire to Hagrid's hut. Mm-hmm. Where's Hagrid? Who knows in the film? <laughs> yeah, like, he's just he, not there. He's the just film. not around, I guess. Yeah. I think the tone of this in the film is like really great. It's just so sad. Harry feels so defeated. Um, and it's good in the film or in the book too. Yeah. But I am also led to kind of ask like, what was ultimately the point of this arc with the Half-Blood Prince? I don't know. And Snape being the Half-Blood Prince. I think the book was trying to be like, oh, you can't trust this. And it was correlating like Harry blindly trusted the book but he didn't, he never trusted Snape. No, not really. So I'm like, where is that? I don't understand. And then, of course, later events in the seventh book will, like, kind of flip our understanding of this. So, yeah, I'm not sure what the point of it really is. Yeah, I kind of wish that, like, I don't know, maybe there were more diary kind of entries in the potions book 
where Harry, I don't know, maybe sympathized more with the writer. Yeah. You know, before I know I said like, oh, maybe it'd be interesting if it was more extreme in its views. Mm -hmm. And Harry was like, oh, I'm going to use it anyway. Maybe in the reverse sense, maybe it seemed more sympathetic. Maybe the person writing in it, Harry connected to more. Yeah. And then to discover that person is Snape. Yeah. That would have been more interesting. Uh, I don't know. Harry just only ever used the potions book for gain to get better in class, to get better grades. Yeah. The reveal that the Half-Blood Prince was Snape kind of emotionally didn't really do much for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like there was a lot of potential there, but it just wasn't really fulfilled. Yeah. And again, it's, he's like, I am the half-blood prince and it's supposed to be dramatic. And I'm kind of like, okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I'm like, all right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we have a beautiful moment where Harry is with Dumbledore's body and the students and teachers kind of all raise their wands together to dispel this evil dark mark that is over the over hogwarts and in the book we get this really lovely funeral scene too where like people and creatures from so many different places and backgrounds come to honor dumbledore yeah and i just love kind of getting to see that and then we kind of end the book with the revelation that the locket that they found in the cave was actually a fake yeah, that uh, the someone had taken the locket already. What are the initials? R-A-B? Yeah. Yeah, which mm-hmm. they don't know yet who that is. Mm-hmm. So I, I even love the fact that, like, the thing that he and Dumbledore had done that weakened him and left him vulnerable and killed wasn't even worth anything. Yeah. And I kind of think it sets up, it sets the stage really effectively for the next book. Mm -hmm. It's like, holy shit, not only are there still four four Horcruxes out there, they didn't even get this one that they thought they had gotten. Mm -hmm. And Harry feels the need to break up with Ginny before this book ends for some reason. I don't know what it is, honestly. I think the movie is smartly like, we don't need this. Yeah, but it is kind of setting up that he's probably not going to come back to school next year and he needs to hunt down these horcruxes. And also the fact that Ron and Hermione are going to join him because they're a team. Yeah, once again, like these books, the past two other books have kind of really set the stage for the following book. Yeah. I remember specifically the fourth one really set the stage for the fifth. Yeah. Um, And I think the fifth to a degree set the stage for this one. Mm-hmm. So I, I like where it leaves us off looking to the future. All right. Which one's better, Ian? Um, Which one do you like better? Because we cannot decide for every person and our opinion is not definitive. No, even though it is without <laughs> any question. Can I actually hand this off to you? I think I know what I want to say. Okay. But I always want to hear your thoughts. Sure. Um, you know what? This is tough because I really love both of these. The sixth book has always been one of my favorites. And the sixth movie has also been a favorite of mine for a long time as well. Um, I gotta say, reading one and watching the other, I feel like there's a slight lead in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel bad saying that because the sixth book is so good and I liked it so much, but God, the sixth movie is so funny and so enjoyable and I really love watching it that I have to kind of give it a slight edge, but no shade towards the book at all. I really do love this sixth book. I'm really glad you said that. I know the sixth book is held very highly among very 
very many Harry Potter readers. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't like it. Like, it was enjoyable to read. But I actually felt like I enjoyed the fifth book more. I really loved the fifth book. I really did, too. And I felt like its themes were very strong Mm -hmm. in the fifth one about, like, uh, defying authority, civil disobedience, like educating people like all those things were very prevalent yeah and then the sixth one reading it i kept trying to like figure out and pull some kind of like common thread yeah throughout the story like how does voldemort's backstory relate to harry now how Mm -hmm. does snape being the half-blood prince relate to harry or his arc or dumbledore's story and like there's some connective tissue there, maybe, but overall, it doesn't feel like there's as strong of a theme or idea of this book as there was in the last one. Yeah. So in my heart, I'm like, am I missing something? Did I like not get from this book what other people have gotten? Babe, we're allowed to have opinions. I have to be right, though. My opinion <laughs> has to be correct. <laughs> and if you disagree with us, with us, that's totally fine. That's part of this experience in making this Absol- podcast. So we love to hear from, from you. And in fact, we'll have a poll on our Instagram, whether you preferred the book or the movie. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I'll be really curious to hear that. But yeah, no, I agree. I, the movie's just so enjoyable. I think it's comedic moments are great. I think it's dramatic moments are great. I think it... The book does drag at points. Yeah. I think at one point, Harry's both trying to find out what Malfoy's doing and get Slughorn's memory. I know. And that and he's failing at both of them. Yeah. And both of those points drag out for a long time where we're not getting any new information. Nothing's really progressing. So there is a dragging point in the book, I think, as well. Yeah. Whereas the movie moves at a faster clip. So. All right. We both agree on the movie. Let's do a quick lightning round. Let's do lightning. All right, so first up for lightning round, I just want to read a passage from the book early on when Harry is on an errand with Dumbledore. And so Harry says, Sir, I got a Ministry of Magic leaflet by Owl about security measures we should all take against the Death Eaters. Yes, I received one myself, said Dumbledore, still smiling. Did you find it useful? Not really. No, I thought not. You have not asked me, for instance, what is my favorite flavor of jam to check that I am indeed Professor Dumbledore and not an imposter. (laughs) I didn't, Harry began, not entirely sure whether he was being reprimanded or not. For future reference, Harry, it is raspberry. Although, of course, if I were a Death Eater, I would have been sure to research my own jam preferences before impersonating myself. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that Dumbledore's talking about his jam preferences to Harry right now. I know, Dumbledore is so great. I love him. Yeah. Uh, So something I had to shout out that I did not talk about in the main part of the episode, but is the cinematography of this film is so good. Yeah. Um, the director, David Yates, worked with a new cinematographer that for this film, I forget his name, and I haven't looked into it, but I'm pretty sure it's the same cinematographer for the next two films as well. Yeah. I just think the framing and the shots are gorgeous in this film. Like, mm-hmm. every little moment is just done so well. Even the editing is done really well. And originally, uh, I guess they had done a color grading to the film that was super muted, mm. like very kind of earthy tones to everything. Yeah. And the producers were like, um, I can't even tell what's happening. <laughs> oh Can my you God. like pull it back a little, please? <laughs> and David Yates and the cinematographer were like, oh, like, I guess. <laughs> and they did it and they were like, all right, maybe it is a little better. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe we did push it too far. But I think overall the effect is gorgeous and like, I think the Harry Potter films 
across the board have good cinematography, but honestly, these last three movies in particular do real have and this was nominated for an Oscar for yeah. cinematography. Yeah. Which is the only Harry Potter film to be nominated for cinematography. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Next for lightning round, I want to mention in the movie how people are always get like getting like smacked. And uh, Hermione smacks Ron when Ron is eating food at the feast when Harry is missing. And she's like, Harry, your best friend is missing. Stop eating. (laughs) And then she smacks Harry later when he tells her in the library that he is the chosen one. And then (laughs) Harry like smacks Ron when they're fighting over that book in Slughorn's classroom. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I just love a little like smacking going on. A lot of physical comedy. Yes. That's like really good. Yeah. Uh, finally for me, I had to mention this book part because I thought it was so funny where in Diagon Alley in the book, um, Harry, Hermione and Ron run into Malfoy and Narcissa. I think I'm saying her name right. Yeah. Uh, in like a word, uh, a robes shop. And Harry just is like, does <laughs> not give a the fuck. Yeah. And at one point, uh, Narcissa says, I see that being Dumbledore's favorite has given you a false sense of security, Harry Potter, but Dumbledore won't always be there to protect you. And then Harry replies, wow, look at that. He's not here now, so why not have a go? They might be able to find you a double cell in Azkaban with your loser of a husband. Damn. He just like goes straight for the kill. (laughs) And I love it. He's just like, I don't even care that you're the mother of my sworn enemy. Like, I'm not holding back on this. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. Uh, That's it for lightning round. And it wraps up the episode as well. Uh, I know this was a little bit of a longer one, but we really wanted to give uh, the time needed to discuss everything that happens in this book and movie. I think for the seventh one, we're going to split it into two episodes. So definitely stay tuned for that. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode and just for listening to the podcast. We love you and we will see you next episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.